0: It may be best to just accept that the universe is a game, with its vastly complex rules and its hidden win conditions. Like the best games, the universe gives its players the illusion of chance, the joyous dance of strategy amidst imperfect knowledge. Knowing that it is a game lowers its value not one whit. It merely frees one up for the key move. It allows the player to embrace the void.
1: I find this void quite calming, actually. It's like, this time, the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling, and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void, trying to reach the news story ah! this concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic
0: what is real how do you define real if you're talking about what you can feel what you can smell what you can taste and see
1: warning this podcast contains foul language dark invocations and treating women like their people
0: Welcome friends to episode 91 of Embrace the Void, where one remains the loneliest number. I'm your host Aaron, and I'll be straight with y'all, I have no idea what happened to GW. I haven't heard from him in over a month, I've tried to contact him, I've heard nothing back. Um, I'm hesitant to speculate uh, beyond hoping that whatever he's doing, he's okay, and hopefully I'll hear back from him at some point. Uh, In the meantime, with a heavy heart, the show must go on. Uh, I felt really, really bad about the delay uh, for the past month, Um, but the combination of uh, GW ghosting and having to move house was a lot. Um, I think, though, that I've got a setup now where I can get back on track um, and keep the quality of the show uh, at the level you all deserve. Um, In the absence of a co-host, I'm planning at this point to focus on interviews Um, since there is a long list of fascinating people who I want to talk to, um, you know, and also because I don't think that anyone really wants to spend an hour listening to me uh, rattle on, though if there is some particular topic that I feel compelled to rant about. Maybe I'll do that at some point. But uh, for the most part, I think there are a lot of very interesting people out there who I want to ask some questions of. So uh, we're still going to bring you lots of voidy goodness. um, And I'll do my best to make up for uh, lost time. And uh, thank you all again so much for uh, being so patient during all of this. So uh, all of that being said, uh, let's get on over to this week's guest. Our guest this week is Ryan Bell, former pastor and host of the Life After God podcast. Ryan, would you like to say hi to The Void?
1: Hello, Void.
0: Uh, Ryan has been so gracious as to come back on and and have an interview with us. Our first interview was lost to The Void, uh, sadly, but we're going to (laughs) have a great time here. Um, Ryan, you you come to atheism uh, through a sort of unusual path, it seems like. Um, Do you want to maybe start with, for folks who aren't familiar with your background, um, sort of where you're coming from, and also your experience in A Year Without God, as it were?
1: Sure, yeah. So, yeah, if you don't know um, anything about me, I guess the thing to start with is to say that I grew up Christian, which is very common, I suppose, in the United States. My folks were roughly mainline Protestants, uh, when I was a child. And after a series of uh, family events, my grandparents were much more a part of our lives, and they were Seventh-day Adventists. And through my parents' interactions with my mom's folks, my grandparents, they became Seventh-day Adventist. And so, by the time I was about seven years old, I was going to the Seventh-day Adventist church. So... I say for all practical purposes, I was raised in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which if you don't know, very briefly, is a 19th century, mid-19th century American invention, and it's um, part of the Restorationist movement that took place at the turn of the century, uh, or, or actually... Yeah, the, the what rest- level
0: of intensity, what level of Christian intensity are we talking about here? Uh,
1: Fundamentalists, restorationists are very keen about restoring primitive Christianity. So they were searching the Bible for lost truths. Um, and that mm-hmm. usually keys to uh, kind of fundamentalism, right? It's so like a literal... Um, mm-hmm. So that, that's how the Seventh-day Adventists came to to be Sabbatarians. So they read the Bible and they said and saw in Genesis that God sanctified the seventh day and made it holy, and which is why Jews observe Saturday as the Sabbath. And they read throughout the Bible and nothing ever indicated a change. So they said, well, we should be going to church on Saturday, not on Sunday, which mm-hmm. the Catholic Church quite clearly takes credit for uh, in history. So that sort of thing. <laughs>
0: Okay, so it's like fairly old school.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it came out of a a rebirth of religious fervor and millennial fever in the mid-19th century. So people... (laughs) Those
0: millennials.
1: Those millennials, yeah. (laughs) The old meaning of millennial, uh, which was like this sort of conviction that Jesus was coming very soon. So that's the other half of Seventh-day Adventists. So so Seventh-day being the Sabbatarian part and the Adventist part being that there's a deep conviction that Jesus is going to return probably in our lifetime, and we should be very uh, keen on being ready for that.
0: That's a tricky st- uh, shtick to keep up lifetime after lifetime, I feel like. It is, you know. You know? Once you've been around for a few generations. You got to, maybe have to revise that.
1: As a child, you know, I, we had just passed like the 150 year mark, and now it's, you know, closer to 200 years. And, and mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's tough after a couple hundred years to say Jesus is coming soon. Uh, as kids, we always wanted to know what soon meant.
0: Right. But you got pretty into it, right? You went. All the way towards pastorship.
1: Yeah, I did. So I was um, always a pretty religious kid or spiritually minded kid. I um, had lots of existential questions as a as a young person, and in my world, the you know those existential questions were addressed by theology. And so I um, was very excited to go to a religious college where I could get academic credit for studying the Bible. And so I did that, and I had a few false starts in terms of my uh, academic career but uh, choosing different paths but I eventually uh, was in pastoral ministry and theology and in 1994 started my career as a Seventh-day Adventist pastor which lasted for 19 years
0: how many folks do you feel like end up in some form of clergy because they they like they like philosophy or ethics or something like that and there's no other outlet for it for them besides the church
1: yeah, I think there's uh, there is a, a section of of uh, a, g- a cohort of of people who do that. I mean, it's also pretty common for converts, adult converts, to go into pastoral ministry because they think that's what they're supposed to do to serve the Lord. Um, sure, you know, it's like the the highest converts call. can be more
0: extreme, right?
1: Yeah, but I do think that there is there is a segment of of uh, of the clergy who were really drawn to the philosophy, to the you know what happens when we die you know, how to, what is a meaningful life and all that stuff. So um, I th- that was really it for me. Like, I, I really felt a measure of guilt about theology, about my relationship with God and the afterlife and all that. Like, I knew if I didn't do the right thing, I'd be lost. And, and so there was a, an element of guilt in the background. But in the foreground, I think, was a real concern about helping people and helping communities and, you know, building the, com- the kingdom of God, as it were. Mm-hmm. So I started off as a pretty mainstream Seventh Day Adventist. By the time I started my uh, pastoral career, I was in just an undergraduate. I mean, just finished my undergraduate degree, so I didn't have any advanced degrees at that point, and was pretty basic in my my approach to pastoral ministry. Um, I was always a people person, so I liked that part of the job, and mm-hmm. but very quickly my people personness started me down a path of prioritizing people's stories over dogma. And so one one story I like to tell is that I had this church member who was a, a real sort of outdoors type of person. He was a mechanic, he was very handy, and he had a large property that he mowed with his riding lawnmower. And so he would bring his riding lawnmower over to the church once a week during the, you know, the the growing season during the springtime and summer and mow the church lawn for free. And he always said it was his service to God. And, and he was just that kind of guy, just, you know, dedicated and, and, and selfless and just a pretty simple guy, but a lot of fun to hang out with. And, and he was a smoker and I don't think anybody uh, was, um, you know, in the dark about that. But in the Seventh-day Adventist church, you're not supposed to smoke and if you are caught smoking, it's, it's been church policy in the past that you would be disfellowshipped, you would be excommunicated from the church uh, for smoking cigarettes. And he mm-hmm. comes to me one day and he says, you know, pastor, I need to resign my membership. And I, I was shocked and said, you know, why? And he explained to me that, Two or three times prior to this, pastors had worked with him to stop smoking, and suggested that when he couldn't quit, he should resign his membership. And then, when he quit, he would join again, and then he would resign his membership, and back and forth like this. And you know, I said to him, "That sounds crazy to me. I feel like if you want to quit smoking, you should be surrounded by people who care about you, and the people who care yeah. the most about you are right here in this congregation. So, um, I think you should not resign your membership." And that was the beginning of me going down a slippery slope of prioritizing people over dogma and before I knew it I was welcoming gays and lesbians into the church if you can imagine. And this gets you to a life without God, I imagine. Yeah, so I mean by the time I got to this to the 7th Avenue Church in Hollywood where I eventually transferred in 2005, I was pretty well one foot out of the church at that point, but I thought if if I could make a go of it anywhere it would be Hollywood, California. And, you know, it was a fantastic run of eight years we had there um, working in the community on issues of homelessness and livability, education, safety, home, you know, housing and affordable housing and stuff. So our church was very engaged in uh, social justice concerns, economic justice issues in the city. And we had a wide range of people in the church from homeless people to doctors and nurses uh, and everybody in between. We had people from, I think we counted one time twenty or twenty-five different um, nations uh, that had immigrated to the, to the United States as members of our church. We had a large Thai population in our church, being that the church was in Thai town, and it was just mm-hmm. it was just fantastic. Well, we had a younger than average population, but the church and my my views and the church's views just became more and more progressive to the point where the denomination said you aren't an Adventist pastor anymore. And I sometimes like to say that I was the last one to find out uh, that they were right, as as it turns out, that I I wasn't a Seventh-day Adventist anymore. But I was, you know, persisting because I was convinced by mentors and and by, I guess, my own thinking that my role was to change the church from within, to try to make the church a more, um, I guess I wouldn't have used this word back then, but a more humanistic type of place. And I Why think you, I, I made um, some headway in that, but in the end, I, I failed. Mm-hmm.
0: Why didn't you, at that point, take up a more sort of progressive denomination of some sort? Well, I did was try re- to do
1: that. So, in okay. I was, I was, um, I was asked to leave in April of 2013. And when I did, um, I took a little break. I had some severance uh, from my years of service, and went to Nicaragua for six weeks and just uh, tried to disconnect and, and relax. And after that, when I came back, I started exploring other churches. I started with um, kind of a supposedly progressive evangelical church in the city and found out pretty quickly that it was, you know, pretty evangelical and, and sort of made a decision at that point that I really didn't want to be in an evangelical space and went to um, my friend's church in Pasadena, where I live now, an a Episcopal, large Episcopal church that's been known for its progressive values um, for decades. They were um, the former rector, who I actually just saw the other day. He's getting quite old now. Uh, I was actually concerned mm-hmm. that maybe he had died. is good friends with Desmond Tutu and Desmond Tutu would speak at the church once a year. Uh, when he would come to the United States. And so they have this long storied history of being um, advocates and ac- activists for anti-nuclear uh, proliferation in the 70s and anti-apartheid work in South Africa all the way up till all the issues that we're dealing with today. And But it was still so churchy. It was still so... Um, their values were progressive, but the liturgy was still very conservative. It was an episcopal... Um liturgy, uh-huh. and and so I I tried a few of these, and and I guess the deeper itch that I needed to scratch was much uh, further below those uh, denominational choices.
0: Mm-hmm. Didn't didn't try for the Unitarian Universalists then?
1: It's funny because uh-huh. I I sort of had this derisive um, view of of the Unitarian Universalists, you know, that they were. That's how I was raised, yeah, I was like they didn't believe in anything, and i I was like, well, what's the point of of we worship a
0: question mark, a flaming question mark that's how you scare Unitarian universalists out of your town,
1: <laughs> yeah, it was like you could believe anything or nothing at all and and I just didn't get it, like I was like, why I, that's a lot of effort mm-hmm. to get out of out of bed and dress up and come down here for like that. <laughs>
0: For a New York Times op-ed for a
1: sermon, yeah, it's pretty much what it is. I mean, uh, I'd rather join my local community organization and fight for tenants' rights on Sunday morning. I mean, there, at least there's some conviction there, some like, we're, we know yeah. what we're doing, but that's, i mean, it's—it's it's a, it's a broadly
0: humanist movement. But I understand what you're saying. It's also the role again of religions.
1: Yeah, and so, I think um, every UU church is a little different too. So if anybody's listening to this, please don't be too offended. I, I know that I are... say
0: all of this lovingly. I learned a lot of things in my UU church, but it's you know you got to make jokes. The yeah. UUs get it. They make these jokes about themselves. That's right. Um. So so you end up in this a year without God, right? So I started um, that and yeah,
1: in 2014.
0: Why did you frame it as uh, like? you know, I'm going to try this for a year without
1: God, rather than like, nope, I'm just an atheist now. Well, for starters, I wasn't an atheist, and I didn't okay. think I knew enough about it to even know for sure whether I was or I wasn't. I I had done a lot of interfaith work over the, last, over the previous eight years, and I had really not encountered any atheists that I knew of. I, I hadn't spoken deliberately to any atheists. I hadn't invited, we hadn't invited any atheists into our interfaith or interreligious spaces and conversations. And so I just felt like I had a lot to learn. I mean, I think on an intellectual level, um, you know, I had read Elaine de Baton's book, Religion for Atheists, and I had read Christopher Hitchens' book, um, God is Not Great, um, back years when uh, before when it came out. And um, we had been exper- experimenting with some liturgies around the death of God, um, and I have been exposed to death of God theology, um, Althusser, and so forth. And and so I was familiar with a kind of theological take on atheism, but I, I wasn't sure... I mean, that's a big step, you know, into the void. Like, that's a, mm-hmm. that's a big uh, commitment. You know, it felt like a big commitment. Now it doesn't feel, like, it feels like so
0: a... So the framing helped it feel safer as like an experiment, maybe? Yeah, I think
1: so. And I was teaching intercultural communication at the time at Azusa Pacific University. And I was like, oh, this is like, you know, a kind of participant observer research that I'm going to do. So I'm going to oh, interesting study atheism for myself, not in an academic way but I'm also going to participate in it as a, a participant. And so go to conferences and, and sort of mentally, you know, I, I, I sometimes talked about it. Like, you know, you go into a movie, like, you know, um, You know, since you're a big fan of the Marvel comics, uh, you know, you go into a a movie. Oh, there.
0: I'm a fan. I wouldn't say big, you know. Oh, okay. 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 (laughs) (laughs) They're fine. They're fine. That's great.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. I I wasn't a big fan of the last one. Anyways, I. And I'll tell you why. So when you go into um, a movie like that, you have to suspend uh, disbelief to engage in the story. We all do it all the time. And. I said what I was doing in Year Without God was I was, rather than suspending disbelief, I was sort of trying to suspend belief. So, and another way that I said, uh, talked about it was to say, I had a hunch in the, you know, in the back of my mind for years, I'd had a hunch that maybe there's no God. I think every Christian has had that thought. So what would it be like if I just went with that hunch? Let's just take as my starting assumption that that hunch is true. What would it look like to live a year like that?
0: No, I mean this is fascinating to me as a philosopher because it's like it's a very interesting epistemic activity, and I can under. I mean, like I imagine you got a little bit of pushback at least. Oh, it could be, you know, it could be viewed as voyeuristic in some sense, right? It could be viewed as dismissive in some sense of like, you know, this is something that people actually believe, and you're like trying it on like a new outfit or something. Sure, like oh, of that. course, I
1: got lots of that.
0: But, but I, I, I mean, to me, what it comes off as is like William James's will to believe done in the atheist direction instead of the theist direction you know what i mean like yeah and like if you're coming from a theistic background and like you've been raised on the idea that like you know faith and belief in a sense precede understanding rather than follow from it that 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 sort of project might seem sort of more coherent i guess
1: yeah i mean i did get that pushback um I, I realized that there was no way to combat that pushback other than just to carry out my project and let people decide for themselves. Um, and I never claimed that it was perfectly articulated or framed. I, I remember mm-hmm. on day two, Hemet Meta wrote a blog post saying, you're doing it wrong, you know, targeted <laughs> addressed to me. And I I responded in a blog post saying, well, that's great, you know, because I've been told for the last two decades that I've been doing Christianity wrong. Now I'm doing atheism wrong. So I guess I'm, you know, in good company. I'm still doing things wrong, Um, you know, making the adherents uncomfortable. Um, And I think it could be voyeuristic, but there's only one way to find out if a person would be doing a project like that voyeuristically, and that is to wait and see. And for me, it wasn't voyeuristic because my I had a stake in it, you know? I had a, But nobody could know that for sure. I mean, they had to take my word for it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it feels more like a permission structure at this point for you to step away, to move away from that kind of lifestyle. But, like, you obviously you don't know that until you're a little ways out and you're still... It seems like you've still stuck with it, right? You haven't sort of trended <laughs> back in any particular kind of way?
1: No, not at all. I mean, I think you know, people would, you know, people love to try to get inside your head. Well, he was already an atheist. He just didn't know yet. And, you know, maybe that was true. I was raised
0: by a psychologist, so I'm already way up inside your head. But yeah, like, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I I think um, if I had to, you know, if someone had a gun to my head on day two of the year without God and said, you have to decide right now, or I'm going to blow your brains out, I probably would have said, There's no God, you know, (laughs) like, um, I don't want you to blow my brains out. If there was a God, I would just Mm -hmm. trust maybe that he would bring me back. Um, Mm -hmm. but there were just too many things like that that seemed absurd. And, um, I had too many problems with it. I, in a way I wanted out and in a way I wanted to find a way to stay. Um, Mm -hmm. I, in my head, I thought there probably wasn't a God in my heart. I really wanted a way to believe, and uh-huh. so my project was sort of dual in the sense that it was an in intellectual exploration of, you know, is there a way to believe? And I thought to myself, there's a lot of smart people who still believe in God. So if they can, maybe I can find a way to, but I need <laughs> to really, you know, put my mind to it. And it was one of those questions that I was never allowed to admit out loud, you know, that I had these doubts and I wasn't as a result really allowed to... Explore them fully. I had other tasks to do, and and frankly, my church wasn't really built around that kind of um, literal mm-hmm. belief. It was more, uh, you know, our church was much more about how do we how do we believe, like what's the expression of our belief, rather than a kind of apologetics. We never did apologetic type of stuff at my church. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So that th- was I was just wondering as you were describing that, like. What is? Are, is there a specific argument that you feel like for you is the the sort of go to explanation for why you persist with atheism? Like the problem of evil, or something like that, or is it an absence of a positive argument for God? Like, what is it that analytically, like, I mean, I understand that emotions are obviously involved in it as well, but is there any of the like argumentative stuff to you that that feels really compelling?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think the, argu- the argument um, or the problem of evil is for sure one of the big ones for me. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, one of my stop-offs in The Year Without God was to think, well, perhaps there's a God who's just evil. Um, and it's funny when that hit me. I
0: fully support that solution, by the way. I'm 100% in favor of the Lovecraft solution to the problem of evil. Yeah,
1: and I, the funniest thing is when it hit me that this was a possibility, it also hit me immediately that I had never, ever considered that, that that was never an option on the table. It's also a great solution to
0: Pascal's wager. What if you're worshipping a god that is evil and, and murders people that worship it?
1: Right. And it's sort of the, the alien series of movies, right? You know, what's the mm-hmm. the last mm-hmm. one? Um, Prometheus, where they go in search of the origins of life and, and they find another life form. And, yeah. in, and ruin the whole series in the process. Right. Really, <laughs> it's a perfect
0: example of the problem of evil. You've nailed that. I agree.
1: Yeah. I don't, I don't, I'm not as big a fan <laughs> of the series, so I don't, I know that people hated <laughs> that funny. movie and... There was some absurdity to it, at, you know, that I, I noticed. But for me, in terms of an illustration of origins, it's mm-hmm. perfectly plausible that, you know, 300 years from now, should we not destroy ourselves completely by global warming, we might discover that some alien creature, you know, inseminated, put some egg or something on the earth and we hatched and or I don't know, like, who knows, mm-hmm. you know, where this all came from. It could be a perfectly rational... Um, naturalistic explanation, and we might end up having a creator. But even if we have a creator like that, it wouldn't necessarily make it divine. Or mm-hmm. anything that would be powerful enough to do something like that would seem divine to us, and we would probably attribute divine qualities to it. So, you know, and the other part that that always tripped me up is people would ask a, a version of the question that you just asked me, which is, what would it take for you to believe again? Mm-hmm. And I always had trouble with that question because everything I came up with, I came up with a, a reason to not believe it. So I thought like, you know, the classic limb growing back, you know, mm-hmm. um, my first instinct if I heard a story of a limb growing back would be that there was some medical breakthrough or some biological anomaly or 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 something like that, because immediately I would think, well, why just this one limb? Why not everyone's limbs? Yeah. Or why? You know what I mean? Like, there's always another problem right. there. So, I don't. Yeah, Hume's
0: Hume's argument against miracles is really really hard to overcome. It
1: is, yeah, yeah. Is in as much as I understand it, I don't certainly. I mean,
0: which which is basically that there's always a more plausible explanation than that some some weird supreme being intervened in this one random case
1: <laughs> and grew somebody's limb back. Yeah, um, yeah, and that's the yeah. case around, like, I've had people say, like, I had cancer, here's my PET scan, I, I had mm-hmm. a prayer service, I went back to the doctor for surgery a week later, and it was gone, mm. you know? Yeah,
0: And I yeah. actually faith pre- healers are amongst the voidiest for me.
1: Yeah, and I actually presided over a prayer service exactly like that. There was a kid who had a tumor, and there was uh, scans of it and everything, and his life expectancy was uh. very low. And oh, we had this prayer service for him and he went back to the doctor and apparently the thing wasn't there. And I was like, and I didn't, you know, we weren't faith healers. We were just like, let's pray for him that God will heal him. And I don't know mm-hmm. that I don't know that even half the people in that prayer circle thought that it would happen. I certainly didn't think it would happen. <laughs> Well, I was the pastor. to
0: know for the double-blind study that it didn't require you actually having faith in it working for it to work. We're always curious about that, like, right. you know, whether it requires actual belief.
1: So when I actually became an atheist, that kid found me on Facebook, and he's now not a kid anymore, and said, but what about my story? And I'm like, dude... <laughs> oh,
0: God, that's dark.
1: <laughs> I know. I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't know how to explain your story. But what I do know is that there's a lot of kids who have cancer who that doesn't happen for them. And nope. so I don't know how to explain that, and and it's all happening behind a curtain somewhere, so I don't know. Yeah,
0: there's a really great Tim Minchin song about this that you know there couldn't possibly be any other explanation <laughs> that did you happen to believe in the one right God at the one right moment and prayed in just the right way, and it brought about just the right thing that made God happy so that you got your miracle? Yep, it's a bit rough.: Screw um, everybody else. So I'm curious for you personally, um, in in this post God world, are there still voids in your life? Do you feel like there are absences that weren't there because of this, uh, that weren't there prior to this conversion, or do you feel like they're the same absences that were there before? Do you feel like you're missing something that you wish you could get back in some way in your sex- secular life?
1: Mm, I don't know that I've I've, I've really come to Appreciate the elements that seemed empty to me in the early years after I I my faith failed me. I think the thing that I miss the most is this belief, uh, often attributed to Martin Luther King Jr., that the arc of the universe bends towards justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, broadly speaking, it's this idea that it's all going to work out in the end, you know, that Mm -hmm. there's going to be a resolution to history that, uh, there is this, um, sort of tidy in, in the, in the, when you zoom in on specific events, it doesn't look so tidy, but from this wide angle, we can see that God's will prevailed and goodness won and goodness will win and evil will be destroyed and, you know, the good guys win in the end, right? Like the hobbits, right. you know, make it to Mordor and throw the <laughs> ring in. And who'd have thunk it, right? Like these little scrawny hobbits, but they did it, you know? And yeah, absolutely. That, mm-hmm. that whole thing to me is is kind of a loss, right? Like we're pretty much just doing the best we can. And even if I do the best I can and you do the best you can... Someone might nuke us, you know or we might scorch the sky or or whatever. So um, there's no promise. And so a lot of what I've been doing in my own work and in my work with life after God is um, mm-hmm. sort of explicating this you know how do we live life without promises and to me that's the the commitment to humanism.
0: yeah, we got into a little bit of this when we uh, when you had me on your show and we talked about, sort of moral realism a little bit. But what you're describing is sort of adjacent to moral realism. It's the idea that like, not only are there moral truths in the universe, but the universe cares about making sure that you know things act according to those moral truths. Whereas sort of the secular moral realism that I tend to advance and it seems like you're sort of jumping on board a little bit with is the idea that like, there are moral truths, but the universe doesn't bring them about in any kind of way either they you know either we we as individuals choose to act based on them or we don't and a bunch of terrible things do happen right so I, I definitely think that the just universe um idea is something that attracts a lot of people to religion so it's interesting to say here you say that like that's that's one of the things that you've had to sort of accept the loss of because I agree that I think, I don't think that without sort of the intervention of a divine creator that you can really come up with a narrative that explains how every single injustice in the world somehow gets balanced out in the fullness of time.
1: Right. Yeah, and that that is actually the theology. I mean there was a there's a theologian Tom Wright, uh, sometimes referred to as NT Wright who really uh, articulated this view, it was almost like a one of the laws of thermodynamics, which is mm-hmm. that there's no act of goodness that doesn't redound to the redemption of all things in due time. Um, mm-hmm. And so, no matter how small your generosity, or no matter how um, benign your uh, gift or or care for someone. Or your protest against injustice, it's all gathered up into the great you know restoration mm-hmm. of all things, you know, and so it really yeah. casts the human actor in into a drama in which you your actions count and matter in the grand scheme of things
0: yeah i been- mean, well, depending on how you read the like. The, the sort of this is God's divine plan and it's going to work out no matter what you do kind of mm. um, problems, but sure buy into the idea that there is free will or something within that system or your, 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 your actions are important uh, or something within that system. Um, I actually, I mean, this is something that I think is really important because I think it's much better when people abandon this idea of the just universe, because to me, Whenever someone gets into how the just universe works, it always ends up sounding like cosmic gaslighting to me where it's like, you know, anytime something bad happens to you, you have to act like it's something good and you're not allowed to just say this is just genuinely fucked up, right? And right. like a lot of what we do on this show is about like pushing back on this um this idea that we're not allowed to say no this is just genuinely fucked up in a way that isn't getting fixed. I'm going to work on accepting that, but I don't have to accept it by pretending that like this fits into some greater divine cosmic plan. Do you feel like there's a bit of a relief as well with the letting go of that sort of just world theory?
1: I do. Yeah, I do. And I think it's, um, it's allowed me to care for myself more that I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't, I can do what I like and I don't have to solve every problem. So if, you know, if I can engage around tenants' rights and and housing, the housing crisis here in my community, which I do uh, every week, um, I may not have time to really engage with, you know, the Sunrise Movement and the effort to uh, stem the tide of climate change. I'll get involved when I can, but, like, there's a limit to myself, right? And I think it's also mm-hmm. recognizing that I have limits and... I have personal needs and social needs and and I can care for those and it's okay. Like I can do the best I can and that best I can is going to have to do. Mhm. Cuz I feel like in the in the past, you know, even though it was almost an in, an inevitability in some sense that the the universe would work out in the right way, it still managed to matter, you know, what I do and what others do and maybe it was a matter of timing it would just take longer if we didn't do more about it or um -hmm. you know i would be holding things up you know kind of of thing
0: other than allowing yourself a little free time which is absolutely great are there other i guess quote unquote vices that you i mean like we talked about the costs of walking away from religion i'm wondering what the benefits you feel like are in terms of like are there things you get to enjoy in life that you didn't get
1: to enjoy in the same way you feel like uh, yeah, I I think um, my Saturday mornings
0: <laughs>
1: mm. uh, not spent in church. Um,
0: I think like Homer Simpson wrapping um, uh, egos <laughs> around a whole stick of butter. I
1: assume, right? Exactly. Um, also, I think as difficult and painful as uh, divorce is, I was it was very freeing to see my divorce as something that could potentially have a good outcome that would not be you know violating god's will in some fundamental way that i could mm. and I, and i also didn't getting divorced didn't have to invalidate everything that went before so i could mm-hmm. celebrate the good parts of our marriage not least of which being my two daughters and and also say this relationship has come to an end and, um, sort of a corollary to that, you know, just being able to, to date. I had never really dated in my life. Um, uh, just a handful of girlfriends and certainly not in the way that most people think of dating today. Um, very kind of, uh, Christian constraints around dating and sexuality and, and just being able to meet new people and, and think of sex in a less, um, hyper sacred sort of way that mm-hmm. uh sex could just be something fun that two people do it didn't have to have all this baggage laden onto it um yeah that that was all really great <laughs>
0: that's a good step yeah yeah what um for individuals who are sort of walking this path and and like walking away from religion or considering it do you have sort of specific really key advice that you
1: feel like helped with your particular journey into that void. Yeah, I think the thing the thing for me that helps so much that I've sometimes advised other people is to just go at your own pace. There will be there will be atheists who want you to be as atheist as them right away and and you know, if you harbor any sort of like Musing that maybe there's a God, or what about this, or maybe I still like to go to church once in a while. There will be plenty of people to mock you uh, for that and try to shame you into not having all the answers sorted out in your mind. And I would, I would just say, take your time. There's no rush. Like you, you know, answer the next question that you have. Um, And there'll also be plenty of Christians who will tell you that you're you know, being deceived and, and I think to trust yourself and maybe this goes back to one of your earlier questions. I really had to learn almost for the first time at the age of 40 something that I could trust my intellect, my own thinking, my own intuition and my learning and my knowledge and say, no, that's not right. I don't, I don't believe that anymore, or Mm -hmm. I don't think that's true. Um, and I I, yeah, so I I think I you know I grew up in a in a culture that really valued conformity and to uh, and obedience and to think for oneself and to disobey was very anxiety producing. Still is in some in some cases. Um, Mm -hmm. The times that I've you know since becoming an atheist and being a part of the atheist community in in a small way, I've made a lot of friends. And some of those friends I've sort of ended up parting ways with because of other types of disagreements that we've had around beliefs and um, and truth and knowledge, and that's been really painful for me. But it's also been a learning that that I didn't just go from one community of obedience into another one um, that mm-hmm. I could think for myself and decide that no, I can stand up to this famous thinker and and have a different idea. That's the whole point of my freedom and my liberation is that I can think for myself and and I would say that to anyone on the path of discovery that if that thinking for yourself feels uncomfortable at first, that that's I think that's right. like that, that it, it, it does feel uncomfortable at first. And people that have always sort of thought for themselves, that have always sort of been secular and, and humanistic in their mindset really will have a hard time understanding that. And, and that's okay, too, that you should just keep on going and keep learning and keep taking baby steps, make a decision for yourself, and then make another decision for yourself <laughs> and, until it gets yeah. comfortable.
0: When you describe the impact of religion on people's minds, I mean, I have to ask, I know this is a hard question, but I think it is an important question. Do you feel like religion is a net negative in people's
1: lives? Oh, man. Yeah, I hate that one. Um, <laughs> I
0: know, but I think it's really important.
1: Yeah, it is really important. And, I mean, setting aside, like, defining what
0: religion as a word means, like, right. I think we all understand, like, uh, you know, the practice of religion in people's lives for the most part.
1: Yeah, I think if we attach, for the mo- for the sake of this conversation, if we attach belief in a supernatural power mm-hmm. to religion and, and say that's a key piece of yeah, what the- we mean theism by— theism of some sort. Theism of some sort, Right um i i have to say that it's a net negative aside from the religious wars you know that are still going on to this day in some form or fashion and the more obvious crimes of religion like you know female genital mutilation and general misogyny and so forth um you know homophobia and anti trans rhetoric um, You know, which stems largely, or at least in some cultures, largely from religion. Aside from that, I think it's back to what I was saying a second ago. I I think what religion does that is pernicious, even when the outcome seems benevolent, is that it it teaches people to limit the scope of their inquiry um, Mm -hmm. in some way. And I I think even if you even if religion channels your energies into generosity and goodness, you're still beholden in some sense to, um, a kind of divine, um, superintendent maybe is the right way to say it, or, or, um, a kind of knowledge base that, that emanates from God. And, and I just think that's a a fundamental limitation to the process of critical thinking and, it it holds people back it held me back um i just think attributing mm-hmm. to god things that aren't rightly god's you know is is in the end probably a negative thing you can probably explain that mm-hmm. a lot better as a philosopher but
0: i mean i get what you're saying in like you know, sort of the moral epistemology kind of sense of like getting in the habit of believing something like that makes it harder and harder for you to really inquire and explore in other areas because you're limited and you're also habituated towards believing what I would call are false things, but
1: or things based on insufficient evidence, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's true. Even when you don't know you're doing it, um, mm-hmm. sometimes you end up doing it. I think one advantage that religion gave me in terms of my philosophy or my way of thinking is the ability to think in a narrative kind of way and to be less pedantic. Um, I think Mm -hmm. pedantry is something that would not (laughs) plague a person so much that was trained in uh, either literature or the arts in some way or theology. Um, You wouldn't be uh, in any way pointing with that
0: comment a little bit towards the uh, secular atheist uh, movement slash community, would you? (laughs) maybe a little bit i mean i mean now that you've now that you've (laughs) bashed on religion i feel like you should i should allow you a little bit of room to like what do you feel like are the are the issues within the sort of secular atheist community um and i think
1: pedantry is certainly one that could go on that that yeah i think so i mean pedantry would probably be the like the least of my concerns but it's more a methodological Mm -hmm. problem uh that leads to other things i think but that, that lack of ability to read the context of a situation rather than just the absolute facts of a situation. Um, and I suppose mm-hmm. the context is part of the facts of the situation. But, you know, I just... And I am I'm guess I'm, I'm reaching for, for words here at the moment, but I've definitely had conversations with people who have said, you know, um, like, just pick an argument, like, say, the lack of women in the STEM fields, right? Sort of sort of like mm-hmm. a male dominated domination in STEM. And someone would say the gender of the scientist doesn't matter. You know, water is water whether it's, you know, a man describing it or a woman describing it. Well, of course it is, but you know, the chemical formulation of water doesn't change because it's a man talking about it versus a woman. But there are other systemic uh I guess thinking in systems maybe is, is part of what I'm talking about. Being able to think yeah. broadly in systemic ways that the that the uh, I think the humanities teaches a person um, is really tough for a lot of. Uh, a lot of atheists, or I see atheists trying to debunk the Bible. This is always really funny, Um, where they'll quote a verse and they'll say, wow, look at this horrible thing the Bible says. And the Bible says plenty of horrible things, so we don't need to make up other horrible things that it really doesn't say. It's fine Mm -hmm. just to settle for the really horrible things that it does say. Um, And, you know, I've said to people many times like that, no one, like literally no one thinks that that verse means that you're reading it right. in this wooden-headed way that no one within the tradition would ever attribute. Um, and I'm not trying right. to... Def- it's usually a kind the- of
0: strawmanning of, of interpretation, in a sense. Sure,
1: yeah. And I'm not def- trying to defend the Bible or claim that it's no. worth right. reading or anything like that, although I do think the Bible is worth reading um, for... I mean, I
0: think it's re- parts of it are required reading for understanding the culture around us. right exactly certain stories i mean certainly you don't need to go back and read the whole thing but god no yeah (laughs) the the beginning and the end those are the things you need you need to read genesis and you need to read exodus and you need to read revelations and you'll get 80 percent of the bible pop culture references out there yeah
1: i think that's that's fair some of the gospels if you want to understand what people are talking about about jesus sure
0: yeah so i i mean I think what you're describing there is something that I experience a lot within the secular community as well which is a difficulty to argue from a place of empathy rather than from a place of pure what they what they what they experience in their minds is pure logic and reason mm. um and I mean I think that's partly y'all's fault in the sense that like they trained up to argue against the religious who very often rely on you know search your feelings you know it to be true kind of arguments um and so i think for them arguments that sound remotely like that even if instead of it, it's not saying you know imagine what god feels it's saying you know imagine what the human being right across from you feels Mm. right they still i think have a reaction to that where it's like it's you know it's that facts don't care about your feelings kind of thing which is ironic that it comes from an orthodox jewish guy but like I think that is a pervasive view.
1: Um, And yeah, Yeah. I think
0: it makes it hard to read the room as you were describing.
1: Yeah. And I think that there are two kinds of, of Christians too. I mean, there are those who, Mm -hmm. you know, really say it all depends on faith, you know, and they freely admit it. Like some of my best friends, you know, they won't argue with an atheist, you know, in an apologetic way. Uh, because they grant that the atheist has the weight of evidence on his or her side, and they basically are taking some things on faith. That's their sort of epistemological starting point. And then there are the types of Christians who are apologists who will go, you know, like Ratio ratio Christi type Christians who will debate you and try to show in a modernistic sense that mm-hmm. the Bible is true. Um, you know, obviously those folks have it much harder in my view. It's much easier to take a sort of a literary narrative approach to the Bible. That myths are true in the sense that they represent truths about human nature and the world, not true in the literal sense. And you can still take religion and you know play games with the stories and so so forth. Um, You know, but if Adam and Eve had to be literal, actual people who were created by the hand of God, you know that's a little bit more difficult. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to prove, mm-hmm. you know, and so yeah, I, I I think a lot of times, um, atheist debaters will, and and they often are debating those apologetics folks. Those are the probably the ones that we, um, you know, like to debate sure. the most. Um,
0: so I, I we're in a little we're in a little out of time here a little bit, but um, I was curious: are there any particular books or movies or pieces of media that you? Would recommend for folks who are walking the path that you have walked um, that you found particularly helpful.
1: Yeah, it's funny that you say. I, I think one that I come back to again and again is um, the Truman Show. Hmm. Um,
0: That's an interesting one. That's yeah, a good
1: choice. yeah. I. It's funny because when I was doing an evangelistic series, I did an evangelistic series as a pastor years ago, in which I used a movie as a jumping off point for the conversation for each of the topics um, and only brought the Bible in later. And I used to use that movie um, to sort of talk about God, but I was getting it exactly backwards in those days. Um, Mm. Because Ed Harris actually exists, it's a bit of a confusing... It is a little, um, yeah, um, (laughs) especially if you're approaching it as a pedant, you know, it's kind of a, wait, there is a God, wait, wait, what? (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah. So that that to me is a is a good one. I I thought that was great. Another one is a documentary called um Kumare. Oh uh, god, I love Kumare. And it really I think gets to the heart <laughs> of what belief, like how belief can work and yeah. Um the cr- the credulity of people and how l- much we long to believe in things, uh some of us at least and and, you know, I just love his arc in that movie that, you know, he's mm-hmm. I don't want to give away <laughs> the movie if people want to watch it. But if he yeah. um, it's basically this this Indian guy who's secular, but he decides he thinks that it's a bunch of hooey that these yogis are, you know, revered around the world. And he's like, I'm going to show you. Um, that people are just gullible and will believe anything. So I'm going to pretend to be this yogi with divine inspiration. And he does, and he gets this huge following. And then about two-thirds of the way through the movie, he has this ethical nightmare on his hands about what to do
0: with all these yep. people who believe in it gets in really it. out of hand in great ways.
1: It does. It gets really out of hand. So if you've not seen Kumari, like it's probably on one of the streaming networks. Just, just watch it. I'm trying to think of what else may have, um, may have helped. Nothing comes to mind at the moment. I'm sure as soon as we hang up, I'll yeah. I'll think of something.
0: No, I mean Kumari, I think pairs really well with the book um, Thirty Six Arguments for the Existence of God." Actually, okay, um, I you haven't heard of read that, that one. one yet. Oh, I, oh, you would love it. It's a narrative um, account. It's it's got a couple of stories in it, but one of them is like a a child who's raised in an Orthodox Jewish setting, who's a sort of mathematical super genius, mm. um, and he has to make a choice between, you know following in his father's footsteps as the rabbi or studying math essentially and like and and then the main character's story is this uh, character who's a uh, he's described as an atheist with a heart and like it's about him writing a book about the belief how belief actually works Um, And it gets, you know, famous because it has this appendices that lays out all the different arguments for God and why they're flawed. And he ends up debating a a theist at the end with a really great sort of climactic sequence. Um, It's a novel, though? Yeah, it's a novel. But at the end of the novel, it actually gives the 36 arguments. Oh, cool. And they're all formally written out with specific counter arguments even though the whole point of the book is kind of these aren't the reasons people believe people don't believe because of arguments they believe because of other reasons a lot Mm. of the time so like but it still lays out the arguments people are interested so i highly recommend
1: yeah which makes me think of anything written by Kaim Potok, um Mm. which was an early love of mine Uh, i'm talking like early high school i was 13 i think when i read the chosen and Um, and Mm -hmm. I actually, in my blogging, uh, during the year without God, um, and some of the writing that I did afterwards, I was trying to trace the origins of my doubt and I would keep going back. And then like, so for instance, one point was when I was a pastor in Pennsylvania, this would have been pre nine 11. So like 1999, maybe, maybe 2000. Um, I had this epiphany as I was driving down the road and I looked at these, uh, movable lettering signs that are out in front of so many churches, and it had some stupid corny phrase on it. And I thought to myself, my first thought was, do they really think that someone driving down the road reading that sign will come into their church? And they'll read that sign and think, oh my gosh, I've got to go to church here. And I thought the likelihood of that is like zero. And And then the immediate next thought in my mind after thinking that was, I would not easily become a Christian if I weren't one already. And for about 15 years, that thought haunted me. Um, because hmm. it was like, what is my faith? Then, if I, if if you couldn't convert me now, then w- is it just a legacy type thing? I guess it is. Right. And so that, then that's going
0: that that most people end up in the same religion they're raised in.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But earlier than way, way earlier than that was my reading of Kain Potok and uh, Reuven's sort of doubt and his discovery of Freud in the library and his illicit library time, uh, reading <laughs> reading Freud and and. Uh, discovering that there might have been some other origins to, to religion than just God. So mm, yeah, fa- fantastic.
0: Okay. Well, I think that gives us some, some useful things for people to, to check out. Um, I think maybe we should head on over to, uh, making the void livable. Yeah. Um, so you had some we... suggestions on this one.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think for me at least, uh, getting out of the city and into nature is, is what, makes sort of the void livable for me, um, I would sort of pair with that art. So, you know, music, museums, like seeing seeing art, and um, and then just seeing the natural artwork of, of the world. Uh, just this last weekend, yeah. my girlfriend and I went out to Temecula, which is a sort of our little Southern California wine country, and had a really nice time. We spent the night in a uh, airbnb that was a uh, it's a trailer but it's permanently like parked there now in this vineyard and uh it was lovely so we were mm-hmm. glamping in a vineyard over the weekend and it was <laughs> i went for a walk in the morning and just took pictures of wildflowers with my cell phone
0: quote uh, it, quote unquote nature
1: yeah quote unquote nature i mean i guess it's uh, like in, in, agri- instagram
0: style nature
1: agriculture nature mm-hmm. there were some plants around sounds nice it was beautiful and it was cloudy, yeah. which is rare for Southern California. Oh, that's nice.
0: Yeah, we just moved to a suburb from a place that was much more urban. And it's really nice to have sort of trees around again and to feel like there are green things in the world again. And looking forward to some camping this summer as well. Yeah. Um, you were mentioning before the show a
1: book that you were reading about and by naturalists. Well, I'm reading well. a couple of things right now. Um, one just about climate change which is not always a happy story but i it's not I, it's not
0: ever a happy story no that's There's never no a point in which it is a happy story
1: it yeah. may have a happy ending if we get our act together but it's very doubtful it
0: it will not but yes moving <laughs> on
1: um so anyway robert mcfarland just came out with a brand new book t- it just came out today so i have not yet started reading it but it's called underland a deep Mm -hmm. a deep time journey and he's written a number of books um he's a british author that's written a number of books about nature and um it's yeah he's 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 a beautiful writer and and also fiction i feel like when i i feel a little burdened by the world whether it's on television there's so much good television right now um and uh and 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 novels um So I do mostly nonfiction reading. So it feels like, you know, eating candy sometimes when I'm reading a novel.
0: I know. Yeah, I know the feeling this summer. I've actually been catching up on all the sci-fi that everyone has recommended me from philosophers in space. So Mm. uh, and I feel guilty, like just not reading philosophy every time that I'm not reading like analytic philosophy. I feel guilty.
1: Have you read Um, the Rama series by Arthur C. Clarke?
0: I have not. Actually, I've read...
1: There's some God stuff in there.
0: I feel like I've read something by Arthur C. Clark, but I'm forgetting which one.
1: 2001, uh, a space odyssey, maybe.
0: N- I mean, I've seen the movie, but I actually, haven't actually read it.
1: There's four uh, books in that series too. Most people don't know. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. It's got to go on the list. Clark does. I haven't, he's one of the, the sort of uh,
1: grandfathers. So I haven't mm. actually read. Yeah. The Rama series is a, a has a serious engagement with a, the God question and, uh, mm-hmm. I don't think I was equipped for it. I need to read read. I really want to read them again. So, uh, be maybe interesting. we can
0: get you on uh, Philosophers in Space at some point to talk um, space gods.
1: Space gods. That'd be great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all. I mean, this is a point that I always come back to, which is all gods are space gods, right? The question is, God an alien is trivially answered by was God born on Earth? And right. God was not born on Earth, as far as I can tell, according to any of the religions. So.
1: Yeah, even Definitely anybody's made-up religion, even if you're writing up a fictional religion, you would never have God born on earth. This is the radical you know, thing about Christianity, actually, that uh, it was sort of a break with that, that Jesus was born as a human being. I mean, this was kind of a a kind mm-hmm. of a Jewish heresy, right? So that's a kind of a departure and a radical innovation for Christianity.
0: I mean, it's pretty obviously catering to populism, right? Like, that's, that's <laughs> such a cheap trick of God to be like, oh, no, I'm one of you, let's have a beer or something. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, we're at, we're about out of time, Ryan. Do you want to sure. let folks know where they can find you?
1: Sure, yeah. Um so my, my main thing right now um besides my day job, which I'll mention too, uh, is my podcast, Life After God. And you can find us on the internet at lifeaftergod.org and all the social media links are there to follow follow us on social media. My personal Twitter is Ryan J. Bell. I would love to have you follow me there. And my day job, I work at the Secular Student Alliance, and so we support about 300 chapters around the country, college and high school, uh, students leading secular clubs on their campus. And we resource them and help them with leadership development. It's really rewarding work, Uh, young people just fighting the good fight out there for separation of church and state and secular values, and trying to make the world a slightly more livable place.
0: Mm, That sounds great. Well, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, absolutely fighting the void out there and embracing it at the same time.
1: Thanks for having me; it's been fun.